Hi, and welcome to this ARC Audio Live podcast. This is your chance to relive some of the events we've hosted, or if you couldn't make it, live them for the first time. In this podcast, you'll hear a presentation from the plant philosopher Michael Marder on what plants can teach us about political organization and resistance, and a presentation from the Danish art, philosophy, and activist group Mycelium on how they use similar but different principles in their work, and the lively Q&A that followed. If you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a rating or review on iTunes and subscribing so other people can find it more easily. Now here's Plant Organizer. Welcome everybody. Um, good to see so many people for this. Um, I think you guys are maybe always the best place. I think we're just going to go Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. I might think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're very happy uh, to bring uh, the philosopher Michael Marder uh, to speak today. Um, my name is Nathan Holt, I'm from Arc Books, a volunteer-run international bookshop, which is hosting this event. And also I've got to thank on the record here for, uh, for all time, uh, Novo Local Uber, for um, kindly contributing some funding to allow this uh, event to happen. Um, a little bit of introduction, uh, Michael Marder is the uh, Basque Research Professor of Philosophy at the University of the Basque Country, um, the author of numerous books on plant philosophy, including Plant Thinking, The Philosopher's Plant, and the new book, Dust. Uh, you can actually purchase Dust or Plant Thinking in, in the break, or afterwards, or tomorrow, if they're still here. Um, so yeah, I'd like everyone to give a big hand to Michael Marder, who will now introduce Plant Organisation. Thank you. It's it's great to see all of you here and to be with you and to be able to share this uh, really very recent piece of work. As I was telling Macon, I just uh, uh, wrote this text or finished writing it a couple of days ago. So it's very fresh and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, sharpening some of the ideas in it in discussion with you. So I will try not to take too much time so that we have in plenty of, uh, of room for, for discussion. Uh, and specifically, I want us to, to think about the connection between plants and politics and about human vegetality or human planthood and politics. Because uh, ever since uh, uh, Aristotle, uh, we have been convinced that uh, uh, if, if we are anything political, then we are political animals. Right, political animals. So that uh, uh, this is not just a metaphor, but many of our uh, ideas, practices, and self-representations of what it means to be political have been based on animality. Uh, you can take uh, the example, um, clearly much more recent, from the 19th century of the state as an organic totality, the state as an organism. Uh, is precisely not just any kind of an organism, but an animal organism, as a, 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 a totality, a whole, where every part is uh, uh, subservient to, uh, uh, to, to, to the, the composite. Uh, uh, or you could take even uh, ideas about protests and protest movements uh, that should happen as demonstrations that move through the streets, uh, like uh, packs or hordes of animals, right? Uh, and, and so that very idea of a political movement is based on the movement of animality, on locomotion, on the uh, possibility of uh, changing uh, places, of moving from one place to another. Uh, but then when Occupy happened uh, about uh, nine, eight or nine years ago, I started thinking about the 
vegetality of, of politics in, uh, precisely in connection uh, to Occupy. And I wrote a small article, which is available on, for free online, uh, for the special issue of Peace Studies Journal on the Occupy Movement. The article was titled, Resist Like a Plant on the Vegetal Life of Political Movements. Uh, and, uh, of course, now in uh, 2019, all of this sounds like ancient history because Occupy has not been on our radars uh, in a very long time. Uh, but I think that while uh, this particular movement was the immediate pretext for writing the essay, my hypothesis extended beyond the global protest that went uh, under that name, because, uh, and, and I tried to wrest the very idea or the concept of movement, whether political or not, from its iron grip, uh, uh, the, the, the iron grip of its association with animal existence and with locomotion. And so in the features of Occupy that I identified then, about seven years ago when I published this article, uh, I think there is an idea uh, or a set of ideas that can uh, 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 let us uh, really have access to the shape of digital politics in its other iterations as well, not only in the Occupy uh, movement. Uh, so to begin with, I want to outline very briefly uh, seven features uh, of, of uh, digital movement in politics that uh, uh, can be extracted from, from Occupy and applied uh, uh, to, to other practices. First, being sessile. By contrast to those political actions where the crowds, packs, bands, flocks, herds of animals, human animals, march in the streets, Demonstrations tied to a place where they linger on turn this place into a site of their growth or decay. This is what happened with Occupy. It rooted itself in a place, right? So it didn't just pass through it. It actually created a certain connection, physical lived connection to a place and turned it into a site of its growth or decay. Having a unique sense of space, these kinds of movements follow another rhythm and pace, a time of life more recognizably vegetal then uh, it is animal. So that's the first feature, sessility, or being sessile. Second, exposure. Mere physical presence is politicized when a group plants itself in a certain highly symbolic locale. The exposure of its members testifies both to their vulnerability in the face of harsh environmental conditions. Of course, the Occupy movement members pitch tents, but tents are poor buffers uh, from, from the elements, from bad weather. Right? So there is this physical exposure as vulnerability and the exposure that implies the expressiveness of existence in its embodied outward act aspect. The body is thrown out there into the street or into the site and, and uh, uh, being exposed. So exposure is both vulnerability and expression, making oneself or being made available and coming into contact like a leaf or a flower. The third feature is anarchic growth and decay. Anarchic growth and decay. Vegetal protest movements do not have a single command and control center. Their parts can thrive in one place and rot elsewhere, which was the case very much with Occupy as well, right? It, it thrived in one place and uh, really descended into oblivion and rotted uh, in another, uh, all at the same time. Clearly, in an animal, this cannot happen. If a part of an animal is decaying, the entire animal is sick and is going to, to die if it's not treated, right? With a plant, things are much more open than that. It can be rotting in one part and thriving in another. In fact, a part of a plant can be living off its decay. It's a, a part that is decaying, right? 
the brute fact, the facticity of a protracted physical presence at the site is coupled with virtual dissemination via the social media and other online means of communication. So there's the physical presence and exposure and virtual dissemination at the same time. And this combination fosters the anarchy of political growth and decay, but also regulates the speeds with which they proceed. Fourth, modularity, modular growth is the mechanism of anarchic growth. Uh, And what it means is that when it is activated, the growth in question uh, is, is modular. It adds architectural complexity by reiterating the already existing quote-unquote simple units grouped into modules elsewhere in geopolitical space. So an animal grows uh, as, as a whole, right? Uh, and, and at a certain point in its adulthood it, or its maturity, it hits a certain limit and doesn't grow anymore. A plant grows uh, differently so that... Um, uh, it, it grows by branching out, by increasing complexity through a reiteration of an already existing part, say a branch or a leaf, right? So you have many iterations, different iterations of the same that increases complexity in this way. This is what is called modularity. An open mode of organizing, modularity affords the greatest freedom of combinations within the seemingly narrow confines of the modules. Fifth, Non-oppositionality. Of course, any protest is oppositional by definition, right? Nonetheless, vegetal movements, by overcoming the basic opposition of an animal organism to its place, rise above that logic. And the risk I'm pointing out here is that when you are merely oppositional, you can become reactive and finally reactionary, right? Uh, um, so one cannot, uh, one cannot succumb to that... Um, uh, even in a protest to that logic of the opposition, and I think plants uh, point a way beyond it. They they are not op- non-oppositional because they do not establish that initial opposition between themselves and the place where they grow, simply because they do not leave that place usually. They can send some parts of themselves out of that place, but they are tethered to it, and so that's the root of their non-oppositionality. Consequently, plants and, and uh, uh, vegetal political movements rid themselves of some of the reactive luggage weighing down much political activism and inflecting passive citizen complaints about pervasive corruption. And this is one of the things I will, uh, will, will discuss today, uh, corruption and, uh, and, and, and the dissatisfaction of, uh, uh, of popular movements of the sort of uh, public opinion all over the world with uh, uh, a corrupt sphere of politics. Sixth, so there are two more features left and then we'll, we'll move on to some uh, further analyses of this. Sixth uh, is mutability. Vegetal politics is not the politics of abstract principles, but of an ongoing metamorphosis, because plants themselves are uh, an ongoing metamorphosis. They do not just change, they are change, right? At any given moment, they can shed parts of themselves. They can sort of, can you imagine an animal that castrates itself every year, as plants do when they drop their flowers, right? Uh, or an animal that just grows uh, uh, a huge percentage of its body anew every year. Of course, some animals shed their tails and, and so on, lizards do, but, uh, but this is rather exceptional. And so mutability. Although occupying its original shape may have disappeared from our radars by now, it has spawned viable political candidates in the US, Europe, and elsewhere who would not have been possible without it. So uh, even though we might say it's gone, it's dead, I I would rather argue that Occupy has mutated 
into, into these barely recognizable other forms of, of radical politics. And seventh and finally, the final feature of uh, uh, veget uh, vegetal movements in politics is hylomorphism, or literally mattered form. Just as there are no abstract principles in vegetal politics, so there is no formal program of development independent of actual growth, decay, and metamorphosis. Right? There is no, it's not like you have an empty form that then you fill with the content of your practice. Rather, the form grows, uh, the form of your political practice grows out of the content of what is practiced. This negation of vacuous forms, of form as an empty container to be filled with anything whatsoever, means two things informality and deformalization. So these political practices are informal and they are deformalizing toward those that have been formalized. Political forms that are viable, that are vital, are inseparable from the matters of politics and they shift along with those matters uh, uh, as, as, as these develop. Vegetal movements illustrates the, illustrate the practical ramifications of this thesis. Now, taken together, the seven qualities I've outlined very briefly here may, may enable us to reassess some of the fundamental issues in political theory and practice. Let me just give you a couple of examples. For, for example, they introduce a dimension of power qualitatively distinct from the currently fashionable polarity between soft power of persuasion, which uh, takes the place of old ideologies on the one hand, and the hard power that peaks in the brutal suppression of dissent. Non-oppositional and exposed, vegetal movements uh, blend the indirect influence of the soft and the tangibly physical elements of the hard varieties of power. Uh, and, and so these kinds of movements, vegetal movements, also throw into the mix the power of the roots, that while avoiding inanimate obstacles, roots are somehow non-confrontational. It's pointless for a root to just bang against the a slab of concrete. They are, they, they, they are good at avoiding inanimate obstacles underground, but gradually they displace these concrete slabs under which they extend, right? Paradoxically put now with reference to a different plant organ, flower power is the power of plasticity, of growing with and decaying into the world, albeit not of plasticity in the essentially conservative sense of increasing adaptability. On the contrary, the vegetal power of protest movements responds and corresponds to the impossibility of an adaptation to the ever more destructive and extremist status quo. Uh, another political phenomenon, and indeed the constitutional, uh, constitutionally guaranteed right in democracies that appears in the new light thanks to vegetal processes, is the freedom of assembly. So what does the freedom of assembly mean once we view it under the vegetal lens and not as an assembly of a uh, uh, pack of animals or of uh, uh, random atoms who are the individuals somehow coming together for the limited span of political action. What, what is that power of assembly vegetally considered? Gatherings of atomic individuals who disperse after a demonstration have little in common with modular growth, stringing together various bodies that plant themselves at a place chosen for a protest and that other such places spread around the world. Growing, decaying, and metamorphosing into something else entirely, an eminently vegetal assembly has a time and spatial orientation of its own. It also prescribes a unique model of relationality, the articulation of parts simultaneously maintaining their semi-autonomy, as parts in a growing plant do, 
and acknowledging the reality of their interdependence. So there is a, a semi-autonomy, a kind of uh, uh, almost independence of parts that can fall apart and lead separate existence. If you take uh, a twig from a plant and put it in water, it can grow roots and grow elsewhere. This is the the, uh, the, 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 the resistance to the organicism of the animal that we've been talking about, and at the same time, uh, affirming the reality of interdependence. The lesson to be drawn from these forms of time, space, and relationality is not that the vegetal assembly is incapable of, of moving. Its movement in a place is in the first in instance in intensive and subsequently extensive. So we should think about not only extensive movement that covers certain ground in in space, but intensive movement as well. In the first instance, I'm arguing vegetal movements, whether in the plants themselves or in politics, are intensive and subsequently extensive, assuming that the place itself enlarges as a result of the expansion going on in it, and that uh, the module replicated in the other places expands them as well. So it's not a growing against the place, as it happens with animals and especially with humans, not growing against the place, depleting its resources and moving on elsewhere to another one, but plants have no other choice but to grow with the places of their growth, right? And, and uh, which, which sustain them. And perhaps uh, humanly, we can only understand this at the scale of, at the planetary scale, right? Once our sort of collective consciousness reaches that level, unfortunately, the dominant ideology is tricky enough and it tells us, well, the planetary scale is not our absolute limit. We can become an interplanetary species and then uh, sort of keep replicating this logic of depleting the places where we are on a cosmic scale, no longer on the scale of the Earth itself, right? And we see lots of that in uh, Hollywood movies, obviously, and in, in some of the more presumably serious proposals by people like Elon Musk uh, uh, for permanent human colonies. Uh, 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 that, that would be extraterrestrial. In effect, in Aristotle's thought in his De Anima or on the soul, growth, decay, and change of state are the three kinds of intensive movement, kinesis, consigned to oblivion as a result of the concept semantic restriction to changes of position and locomotion in modernity. So in modernity, we started thinking about movement simply as changes of, uh, as displacements, changes of, of place. But if we go back to ancient Greek thought, uh, there were four different connotations of movements, and three of them are recognizably vegetal. Growth, decay, and metamorphosis, or change of state. This is what I would like to return to. And here's the slightly discouraging bit that said it would be foolhardy to romanticize vegetal political movements by limiting them to progressive causes. As I just mentioned, the dominant ideology is... Uh, 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 is, is also uh, pliable enough to, to adapt to this. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and I would argue that um, the, the kind of power structures that we inhabit now are themselves becoming vegetal. Without, it, we, uh, without knowing it, we are living in a world that is vegetal, and that includes the, the dominant ideology and, and, and power structures as well. For all the intellectual animosity widespread on the left to sovereignty and centralized authority, these are not today's enemies. We conjure them up at best from the day before yesterday. 
anarchic plant-inspired resistance to the consolidated organization of an animal-like totality is nothing but an illusion nowadays. Without knowing it, establishment politics too is vegetal, hylomorphic, mutable, not directly oppositional, modular, anarchically growing and decaying. So there is a kind of a movement of co-optation of these features of vegetality by, by the status quo. The clash, if it is one, is taking place within the folds of vegetality, which is, with the mediation of the image of the network or the web, imperceptibly defining our idea of being as such. So when we think of being, of, of ontology itself, as a gigantic web, we, we are uh, actually projecting uh, what I call vegetality onto it, and, and that uh, includes uh, uh, the, the establishment politics as well. Alert listeners might have noticed that I did not include two features of digital politics, namely exposure and cecility, in my description of the status quo. And that was not an accidental omission. So maybe that's where the site of, of hope is, that uh, exposure and cecility cannot be uh, co-opted, or at least easily co-opted. Let's take a closer look at them and see what's going on uh, with them on the other side of the power divide exposure to surveillance, to the outside, to danger, to one's own finitude, is the lot of those caught in the nets of power, which decentralized and dispersed hides all the better. And Foucault already was very good at showing how power is no longer, even the power of the late, uh, mid to late 20th century is no longer the centralized power that we associate with the term, but is decentralized and dispersed and therefore much more effective. Uh, in that sense, uh, and, and one is more, expo more thoroughly exposed to it because of that. The omniscient and impersonal technogaze is not itself seen, even if we spot CCTV cameras or drones in our vicinity. What could be further from exposure than that? Still, I would argue that the invisibility of the anonymous gaze is congruent with digitality. Following two distinct energy regimes at once, Plants maximize their sun exposure above the ground, but they're also hidden below ground in the zone called the rhizosphere. So there is exposure above the ground and hiddenness below the ground, below, below the ground level, and the two operate at the same time uh, in plant life. While the feedback loop between the organs inhabiting these regions is complex, roots often inform developments in the upper portions of plants. It has been shown, for instance, that the flowering time of Brassica rapa, or field mustard, is affected by interplant root queuing. So the roots of other plants are queuing the roots of this particular plant uh, about optimal conditions and the best time for blossoming. And then uh, biochemical processes is initiated based on that uh, underground communication for uh, the field mustard to blossom. Such findings are consistent with the so-called root brain hypothesis that Charles Darwin and his son Francis advanced already in the 19th century. The hypothesis according to which plant roots are the functional equivalent of the brain in animals with the central nervous system. Obviously, their theoretical gesture threatens to restore the power imbalance apparently flattened in vegetal ontology. The obscure portions uh, of the plants are, uh, are said to control the exposed ones in a throwback to traditional metaphysics. Even so, the new differentials of power 
will be mapped onto the grid of plant life that on the hither side of oppositionality absorbs into itself the resisting and the resisted, the open and the concealed, surface and depth. Now, we tend to pay attention to the question of opposition in politics, right? That, that the idea of non-oppositionality of plant life uh, 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 seems to be almost apolitical to us because if you are a political being, you have to have uh, uh, you have to be opposed to something. You have to have a position and you have to have a, po a position that is opposed to another one, right? Uh, so, what, but I, I think the sense of political, uh, political position is, uh, 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 is a very rich one. I'm not referring only to party programs and platforms of candidates to political office, but to position in the phenomenological sense of a living body in space, right? We, our bodies occupy certain positions, right? We're all sitting now. It's a kind of position. We will stand up and then it will be a different one. Uh, and, and so that, that positionality, I think, is also, the, in, in a very concrete, phenomenological sense, is, is uh, pertinent to politics. Uh, um, from the Latin sedere, sicility, the, the, the way plants are, as sitting, presumably, sicility connotes a sitting position, which is considered in terms of what the body can withstand over, uh, over time, more stable than a standing one. That's why we're, most of us are sitting now, because it gives us more stability for, for a longer period of time. To us, it sounds like the other of mobility. Sicility, that kind of sedentary life of plants, sounds like the other of mobility, a symbol or a symptom of the feudal past, of a fixed political-economic political order where both the lords and their serfs were attached to specific plots of land, kind of feudalism, right? Human settlements are fundamentally agrarian, inseparable from the places of plant cultivation and phenomenologically aligned with the sessile nature of vegetal existence. The modern state, on the contrary, adopted a standing position. To be in a state, to be a state is to be standing, to have a status is to be standing, which is inherently oppositional. As I write in my recently published political categories, and I quote very briefly, in its standing position, in its erection, which the institution formalizes, the state demand, demands that its citizens stand up for it at a time of war, or in other words, that they be prepared to fight and die for it, to lay down their lives. So conceived, its stance is virtually inseparable from a standing army. The state is a standing army. It's this belligerent position of an oppositional kind of confrontation. Uh, and, and then plants seem to be the figures of peace and peacefulness because they're so sedentary and, and, and immobile and non-oppositional. But needless to say, the politics of sitting and standing cannot be neatly segregated. Plants are sessile creatures, but they do not just sit there in a place where they sprouted or were planted. On the one hand, they branch out above and below ground, extending their place, it, uh, uh, extending themselves and making their place itself extend. On the other hand, those that have sexual methods of reproduction at their disposal send their pollen and seeds well beyond the limits of the site where they are. The mobility of the sessile, which they exemplify, applies to the protest movements I have described earlier and to the apparently static political regimes that are so framed only by an ideology entranced with constant change, an ideology that we are living in now. 
a part of this ideology, contemporary power is determined not by its position, but by shifts in positions that viewed from a historical perspective are internally incoherent and mutually inconsistent. Thus, transnational capitalism abandons the principle of state sovereignty even as it passes through states via national debt, rendering them its obedient functionaries. Political opportunism is rather than an aberration within the chaotic trajectory of power, its faithful expression. And so in the remaining time, what I would like to do is to look at uh, three deviant forms of politics, uh, so-called deviant forms of politics, three forms of politics that are uh, usually uh, objects of complaints uh, uh, and, and of dissatisfaction, and show how these are the underside of a vegetal movement in politics. And very briefly, I will talk about opportunism, which uh, is co corresponds to modular growth or to the way plants grow. Then I will talk about corruption, which corresponds to the movement of decay. And finally, I will talk about what I would call non-identity politics, which corresponds to changes of state or metamorphosis, and, and see what can be done with these, these kinds of so-called political aberrations. Along with corruption, opportunism is one of the dirty names for political systems and their pernicious workings in every corner of the world. Maybe not so much here in the north of Europe. I think you are probably the least corrupt societies based on, uh, on, on at least on some international indices of this. But uh, uh, nonetheless, you have corruption scandals aplenty all, all over the world. Uh, and, and so it, um, it becomes, corruption becomes in the minds of, of people, of ordinary people, becomes synonymous with politics as a kind of dirty thing, right? So much so that in the vernacular and in populist discourse, these two words, opportunism and corruption, uh, become synonymous with politics. So not only corruption, but also opportunism. What I propose is that the automatic and deliberate critiques of current political systems and processes point toward the underside of vegetal movements of growth, decay, and metamorphosis, understood as the perversions of and deviations from the ideal of good politics. I want to give these deviations a positive twist, a positive spin, in order to get out of the quagmire of pure negativity, cynicism, resignation, and ultimately paralysis that accompany the widespread and ceaseless criticisms of the status quo. And some of these... Um, uh, negativities and cynicisms can actually become active as it recently happened in Ukraine, for instance, right? And we can talk about this case as a very curious case of what I see as a, an apolitical political action by a, a, a vast number of people who voted for, uh, uh, for this anti-corruption candidate in the presidential elections. So first, opportunism. Opportunism has, a long, has long been a derogatory term for the absence of core principles behind personal or pol political conduct. Concretely, it may entail forging tactical, strategic alliances with those previously deemed the enemies, breaking past promises, and acting according to the changing circumstances. Vladimir Lenin famously railed against the opportunism of social democrats, chief among them Karl Kautsky, who according to him betrayed Marxism. And this is based on his critique of the Second International, right? Short of defining opportunism, he notes that it is, in his words, first a mood, then a trend, 
until finally it forms a group or a stratum of political agents who pay lip service to their cause, the revolution. Right? So for Lenin, opportunism is first a mood, then a trend, and then it concretizes in a certain political agent. As a mood, opportunism is ubiquitous. It saturates the political atmosphere. As a trend, it turns into a principle of no principles behind much of political talk and action. And finally, as a stratum, it condenses into a political subject attuned more to the prevailing moods and trends than to clear programs or ideas. But could we not say that plant growth is opportunistic? Without a fixed architectural blueprint for a mature tree, a sapling will develop there where conditions are more favorable. It will grow more in longer branches on the sunny side, send its roots to most resource-rich patches of soil, and create alliances with insects, fungi, birds, etc., depending on the shifting circumstances. Modular development is triggered at those meristems, at those embryonic parts of a mature plant, at which the environmental conditions are propitious for further growth. Highly attuned to fluctuations in its developmental context, a growing plant is of a piece with the dynamics of its place. To qualify vegetal growth as opportunistic, therefore, is to affirm its non-oppositionality, plasticity, mutability, and hylomorphism. Whereas a principle stance makes an appeal to the unchangeable core, a deep layer of tenets and convictions that cannot be violated without interfering with the identity of the one who is sticking by them, opportunism moves on the surface, it glides really on the surface, or better, at the interface of the opportunist and the political milieu, as it monitors and responds to the morphing edges of things. That is why Lenin links opportunism in the first instance to a mood, a fleeting change, a fleeting state of mind that does not constitute the identity of the one who is in it. Right? Opportunism, Lenin says, is a mood. And we can be in a happy mood now, in a more depressed one later. So it's a fleeting kind of state of mind, not uh, uh, really bearing on one's identity. Instead of the principle of solidarity strictly divided across class or other lines, opportunists receive their cues from the political conjuncture that presents ever-fresh collaborative possibilities. Now, arguably, to turn the tables back on Lenin, he himself did so, he himself followed the political conjuncture when he recruited the masses of Russian landless peasants for the cause of a strictly proletarian revolution, right? His own approach to opportunism was not principled, but, well, opportunistic. Uh, in short, the politics of transcendental principles and truths is blind to the historical context of concerted action, the very context to which plants are highly attuned, which, uh, which is equivalent to the place and time of growth. Opportunism, on the other hand, is utterly immersed in and driven by this context, which makes it existentially vibrant. Now, Lenin does not hesitate to resort to the language of botany in describing opportunism. It is, he writes, overripe. It is not just ripe, but overripe. Opportunist political activism is a sign of decay, of having crossed over to the bourgeois camp, according to him, seeing that the bourgeois regime is in a state of decomposition, rotting into the ground in which a socialist and later a communist order would germinate. And this leads us, in turn, to the issues of political corruption that are on people's minds and, if only nominally, on populist agendas 
irrespective of their national belonging. So we saw something positive and plant-like about opportunism. What could be positive and plant-like about corruption, right? That's that's the question. When the undoubtedly justifiable complaints about corruption switch into an active gear, they routinely prompt calls for widespread purges in the echelons of power, right? And this is what led to the election outcome that we have in, in Ukraine, for instance. But historically, there have been much more drastic examples of this, which we will get to. Before contemplating possible solutions, however, it would be prudent to think through the meaning of corruption, keeping at bay the repulsion it involuntarily induces. The moment we do so, we realize that the nightmare of the always worsening political corruption is a shadow cast by the neoliberal dream of infinite economic growth. So, infinite political corruption is the underside of the neoliberal fantasy of infinite economic growth. Both fantasies are untenable. Just as nothing can grow indefinitely, so it is impossible for something, say politics, to rot without end. What we have before us are two movements of vegetality, isolated from one another, ideologically driven apart, and allocated to different domains of human activity, economy and politics. And they become monstrous, immeasurable, incommensurable with one another due to their uncoupling, which is in any event never complete. Because in, uh, a plant actually grows thanks to the decay of the compost of the soil, right? And the soil uh, decays by receiving parts of plants into itself, They're the leaves, uh, the, the flowers, the fruit, and finally the entire tree, right? So the, the two are completely imbricated in vegetal life and uh, in, in our uh, contemporaneity, they have been uh, uh, separated uh, in, in these political and economic spheres. Non-oppositionality applies to the vegetal movements of growth and decay in economics and politics. The corruption and decay of the political sphere feeds neoliberal growth, which causes a further deterioration in the not yet privatized and the non-privatizable, what we can still call the commons, the environmental commons, for instance. Rather than cleanse body politic of the sign of rotting of the signs of rotting it exhibits, we must ground the growing and the decaying otherwise. We must anchor the two movements in one another instead of purging corruption. As Marx and Lenin did when they inadvertently vegetalized modes of production and showed how a new world is born from the putrefying remains of the old, right? So uh, ultimately Marx and Lenin did not say, let's just purge the, the capitalist world order, but they said a new society will be born out of the decay of the old. They vegetalized that movement of history that we, we all uh, know about. For whatever rot is conducive to future life, to the future of life itself. And by implication, what does not rot, all of these non-biodegradable materials that are unleashed into the environment, from plastics to nuclear waste, is what is really standing in the, in the way of life, standing uh, against uh, vegetality and life itself. The temptation to purge corruption is nonetheless exceptionally strong, notably in post-revolutionary periods, as in Robespierre's France or in Stalin's Soviet Union. The deadly idealism of these regimes has for its enemy uh, the materiality of existence, inevitably viewed as imperfect under the magnifying glass of an ideal. Robespierre constitutes the French uh, or construes the French Revolution in messianic terms, 
as a chance to excoriate in his words the last excesses of human corruption, for which there is no cure but the guillotine. Right? This is what unbridled idealism and the purges, the purging of, of all of these impurities can lead to. Hegel interprets the ensuing reign of terror as the triumph of sheer negativity, announcing absolute freedom, the freedom of spirit from matter, hence spirit's voiding, its transformation into a void, an abyss. It is the logical culmination of enlightenment craving for total transparency, a government of and by pure reason. The project turns out to be deadly because it embraces exposure and strives to eliminate obscurity, cutting existence figured in a vegetal manner from its roots. Here, everything gets twisted into its opposite. A break with what is opaque and impenetrable is the very rupture of corruption that blocks a gradual and always partial passage from the dark to the luminous. So the problem with the Enlightenment was not light per se. It was the dream of feeding on the light of reason alone in a sort of sublimated and deranged photosynthesis while rejecting the nourishment that decay provides in the dense darkness of the earth. All that dense impenetrable materiality that is nourishing as well. In so doing, it, the Enlightenment, undercuts the double character of human existence distributed along the conscious-unconscious axis, reflecting the life of plants above or in, and below ground, and the disparate modes of energy production corresponding to these regions. Now, enough deconstructive criticism has been leveled at the transparency of meanings, intentions, and even desires. But at the same time, uh, the transparency of the public sphere has been 10%. It remained the yard, yardstick of laudable politics, of good politics. Such cherry-picking, I think, is internally inconsistent. Psychic life cannot be subject to a set of rules that are poles apart from those regulating political existence. Transparency is crystalline, mineral, not yet or already not alive. Something is inevitably rotten in the state of Denmark, and I'm saying it tongue-in-cheek here in, in Denmark, standing for any state or political institution that in the course of its history distorts its founding intent, which is itself incipiently distorted in as much as it shelters an impulse and its exact opposite. Instead of the usual insistence on the transparency of the public sphere, we should try to reconnect its conscious manifestations to their unconscious roots, without the hope of fully exposing either them, either these roots, or the ground they are buried in. In other words, we need to carry out a vegetally inflected psychoanalysis of corruption. Uh, now, the, there is there is a lot to be done there, and we can we can talk about it. But we are uh, I, I I want us to have a discussion. So let's move on to find to the third and final digital movement that I borrow from Aristotle, which is a change of state and the way that this can provide a critique of the so-called identity politics. Mutability, as I've already mentioned in the beginning of my remarks, is not just one of the qualities of plants and of the politics they inspire. It is, above all, what plants are, perpetual metamorphosis. According to plant scientists, changes of state is how plants behave, initiating chains of morphological or physiological alterations in response, in response to events in their milieu. What an animal accomplishes by moving its limbs that allow it, for instance, to flee from danger, a plant does by changing its growth patterns and directions, at root and shoot merry stems, 
So it can change the direction of growth uh, based on uh, perceived danger. It can shed the existing or growing uh, or grow new tissues, or it can initiate nearly instantaneous changes in the chloroplasts in order to avoid photoinhibition when there is too little sunlight. The behavior of political institutions is more akin to that of plants than of animals. After all, the, after all, the polis, the state, the empire are territorial entities that despite differences between the geopolitical, geographical, geophysical, and existential kinds of spatiality span a constellation of places. And aren't the forms of political community I've, I've listed, the polis, the state, the empire, themselves proofs of the vegetal political metamorphosis of behavior via changes of state from which even the state is not immune. To the question regarding the trigger events for the, the shape-shifting behavior, a typical Marxist response is the unstable conditions for the appropriation and the expropriation of wealth. That's why the forms of political organization change. Uh, that's why there's this metamorphosis, because the conditions for the appropriation and expropriation of wealth change as well. Just as both plants and animals act to nourish themselves, to develop defenses from threatening stimuli, and to reproduce, so do political institutions. In the situation of war, which could not be more animalistic, it seems, the troops themselves, the, the, the armies, advance and retreat, but the polity they defend or attack does not go anywhere. It either grows or contracts. The empire is the quantitative growth of a state that at a certain tipping point becomes qualitatively different, no longer a state but precisely an empire. The rule of transnational capital does more than that, as I've already mentioned as well. It undermines state sovereignty and up to a point it uproots the political communities it feeds on, heralding their final metamorphosis into something non-vegetal. Identity politics in turn, is a case in point of betraying and actually freezing vegetal political movements. Whether it affects plants, animals, or humans, an identity stiffens behavior into a mask. An identity refers to what, not to how, something or someone is. The divisiveness of identity politics has to do with its exclusivity, a shrinking of its categorical boundaries until at its most determinate, it admits only the population of one. So perfect identity politics is the identity of only one, <laughs> one person, right? Identity precludes growth and decay. Like transparency, it is closer to the world of minerals than that of plants, which is also why it is so brittle despite its stiffness and shatters easily into tiny bits. And like abstract principles, it pre-exists its contents. Richly differentiated as it may seem, especially in comparison to the simple, infinitely iterable modules of vegetal growth, the branches, the leaves, and so on, identity is formally poor. It isolates, posing barriers to solidarity. Plant politics, on the other hand, is a politics of non-identity, thanks to the mutability and hylomorphism ingrained in vegetal ontology. And so to conclude, non-identity politics drastically reorients our perspectives on community, solidarity, coalition or alliance building to the extent that it starts from the middle, from the interfaces between growths and symbiotic assemblages, Mary stems transition zones around the roots, feedback loops with environmental conditions. 
it does not begin from the self-contained units that need to be somehow articulated with one another a posteriori. Because that's what that's the case with identity politics. It begins with uh, self-contained units that are then somehow need to be linked and chained to one another. With the non-identity politics of plants, uh, you, you begin from the middle, from the what, what is in between already. So the whole problem uh, uh, falls away. Stretching toward the things it binds from the middle, non-identity politics is relational, provided that, that by relation we mean both the common and that which is no one's. What belongs to two or more elements and the no man's land in between. The stretch, the span of non-identity is the space and time of plans. The space and time that are also ours, if and when we refrain from chopping ourselves and the world up into fully independent, discrete entities and embrace constant metamorphosis of ourselves and the world, of ourselves into the world and the world into ourselves. Vegetal movements in politics have this deformalizing effect and they're also rooted as though it, it were their cause in the weakness of the human levies, trying in vain to contain the torrents of life. Thank you. Well, um, welcome back uh, from out there and back here. Uh, I'd like to uh, introduce our guests for the second part of um, tonight's event. Uh, we, I'm very happy to bring you uh, two, uh, well, some mycelia of mycelium. Um, that is the extent to which they wish to be introduced. Uh, beyond that, though, I am uh, at a certain point in the past, I, I interviewed them for our website, The Shop, and uh, you can purchase that for a very modest sum. Or just read it free online, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one thing you can't uh, read online is the first uh, English edition of one of um, the longer, more philosophical texts, uh, Mycelium, what is now being called Mycelium 7, but it's a translation and adaptation of Mycelium 2. So uh, very excited to debut that um, this evening. For a modest price of 80 kilometers, so uh, I believe that's a cost, so... Um, so, big round of applause for my city. All right, thank you, uh, Mike, for the introduction, um, and thank you all for coming tonight. Um, we are going to deal with what we consider to be important topics in continuation, to some extent, with what Michael has already talked about. We are not going, however, to be speaking as philosophically or conceptually, analytically as Michael was doing. We tend to think about ourselves as a uh, unstable, decentered group of people working together with one another, but also across non-individual spaces of being, if you will. So we are very much environmentally invested in our practices, and we take as part of our core inspirations various phenomena from the so-called natural world to which we very much belong and are co-created by. Uh, we try in our practices at a very fundamental level to do away with the uh, highly problematic dualistic ontology of modernity and uh, also from longer ago. 
where you have an external world out there and you have an inner space of mental, cultural, psychic powers, forces and circumstances inside, if you will. We try to practice our collective art as a constructive and affirmative opposition to these kinds of thinking. And Michael has already touched a bit upon the, I think you call it fantasies of neoliberalism, endless growth in these sorts of things. And we tend to believe that those fantasies are, to a large extent, based on these problematic notions about what reality can be said to be and subsequently what human beings can be said to be. Uh, so, without any further ado, we would like to enter into a little practical exercise with you. Because, as I said just before, we are not going to, we will try not to say yes to the indirect, implicit invitation to continue philosophizing on the large, the broad, in the broad sense, in a general sense. But we will try to incorporate the spirit of Brazilian here today with you, and we will see how it goes. It's the living word, as you say, in high school or something, that we try to practice. It's, uh, we don't have a script. We, we often do it together and try to read the signals of the room we are in and co-constituting with the new, the audience. And we will try to, to challenge the, uh, the boundaries of uh, passive listening and active speaking and so on. I think I can also say that that's part of what we are about. So, to repeat, without any further ado, please rise from your asses, get on your feet, or parts, or whatever you have down there, and then give your bodies and limbs and stems and stalks a good, a good shake. Come on, shake it up! Oh! Maybe a bit of jump! That feels nice. Get the blood flowing. We have a a good, a good base for neural activity. <laughs> Can you feel yourself right now? Can you feel your body? Yeah. Shake a bit more. <laughs> yeah. Alright, so. Speaking of revolution and Marx, continuing in Michael's vein, uh, in Maoist China, there was a common motif in the art, when Mao was supposed to be the sun, and his subjects, or people, or the people of the of China, were supposed to be sunflowers. Have you ever seen a field of sunflowers turning towards the sun? It's 15 past 8 in the evening. Do you know where your sun is right now? Could you turn to the sun from where you sit? You are clearly not plants, but maybe <laughs> maybe we'll get there. So today's topic is plant organization and we will to some extent obey this headline of tonight's evening. Uh, we will try to in certain stretches of time uh, respect the format of a talk and we'll try to say something uh, hopefully practically intelligent and intelligible concerning uh, how Mycenaeum realizes its uh, imminent potentials 
of aesthetic expression, political enunciations, philosophical activism, and so on. Um, Mycelium, in the shape that we know it, began in 2015, mainly in Copenhagen, and we got together certain people and talked about how can we enact and um, combine our various efforts to produce thoughts, literary writings, performance, artistic expressions, and so on, in a strong and synthesized manner. And we sought, we sought out different concepts or principles that we maybe should incorporate and tap into those who wanted to participate in this project. And as you can see right now, we, we choose to be anonymous. We, uh, we don't write our names in any of our publications, and we don't present ourselves with a, with a visibly recognizable or audibly recognizable human names. It's, um, this, this was a practice that came about because we, we come from a, a wide range of fields. Um, there are philosophers and there are artists and there are yeah, musicians. There are a bunch of people associated with mycelium. That's how mycelium works. You become associated with mycelium by doing something in under that name, and then you are mycelium. Um, but we felt that in our, our respective fields, we had um, difficulties, always difficulties in uh, always this 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 background process running, where we always asked ourselves: Is will this be good for me? Will this be good for my career? Will this be something I can use? This process was always running in the background of our professional lives and our artistic lives. Um, and to some extent, mycelium, because it is anonymous, it is a practice where we are in a collective subject. Um, we are... Thank you. We are allowed and we are encouraged to divest from our identity as being and this and whatever. Um, and that opened up a whole field of expression for us, where we were allowed to do an experiment and instead of planning projects, we were engaged in doing processes. We were engaged in creating and we didn't have this background process always asking ourselves, what am I using this for? And... Um, we found that that was very fertile ground for thought and for action. Um, and in a, in a very real sense, it stems from a philosophical project, but it soon became clear that it was also uh, directly tied to a political activism. Mm. Uh, many of the projects that we have done under Mycelium, or Mycelium has done, have been artistic. They have taken the form of seances or witches' circles. They have taken the form of ritual um, but we have also manifested ourselves in uh, in, in protest, uh, where we've used the fact that we have uh, anonymity as a prescription for all members to um, shed light on some of the issues of the day uh, concerning um, citizens in Europe and in Denmark. Um, but this whole this how this whole uh, this whole idea of anonymity. 
just proved to be very um, yeah, fertile ground for, for thought that we would not have expressed or we would maybe not have uh, invested as much energy and time into if we did not have this outlet that is Marcelin, this thing that Marcelin does. I think part of the doing, part of Marcelic doing has to do with the notion, various notions of eroticism. Uh, it was a funny remark Michael had concerning the state being uh, an erection, having an erection because it's, a, it's standing. And now it just so happened that uh, during Michael's talk, the only bodies, uh, if we can say extended bodies in the room that were actually standing were, were, were the two of us, two Marcelia in the background, having a great time with our erections. <laughs> and um, of course, we're saying this as part of a... Uh, cliche joke perhaps, but it's important to, to mention this because the way we conceive of and try to practice uh, uh, eroticism in our um, arts, spiritual performance collective of Massilium has a lot to do with desire transgressing beyond the limits of individual human beings. So just to try to exemplify this in very um, practical matters, uh, in an article that we have succeeded in uh, having published in a, uh, uh, an upcoming anthology, an academic anthology on different writing procedures and uh, ways of writing, um, using the written language to convey knowledge, insight, analysis, and so on, um, we uh, have tried to uh, invite readers into the... Um, machine room of Masilic creation. Um, and what we have written about writing Masilically in this article, uh, which is also being published anonymous, it's only, it only has the name Masilium as, um, as the author and, um, and uh, the being behind the text. We're trying to account for what we, what we do. And oftentimes we work together, 5, 10, 15, 20 people, various all the time, in online word processing formats with the possibility to conjure up simultaneous processes of editing, manipulating, crossing over, altering, extending, revising, and so on, the text that has already been written there. And uh, you don't have to ask for permission. It is based on trust. And it's based on a desire to change what is in front of you in a non-deferred manner. We work very directly and to the point when we work, but yeah, it's a continued process. And when we choose to say, or when Mycelium decides in an emergent manner, now it's time to go into press, then it is not because the work in question has been done or is finished, or has entered a certain uh, state of uh, final ripening, or anything like that. It has to do with more base manner, matters, actually. It just has, we, we, we decide uh, that we need to uh, get something out. And uh, we have a certain uh, desire for frequency. Uh, we cannot uh, uh, not come out in a whole year, say, we need to, um, we need to publish sorts of frequently. So I think our publication rate nowadays is approximately three to four publications a year. 
And uh, as Macon has been so nice to announce already, you can acquire some of the publications here today. Um, the new English version is very exciting. It's uh, it's not really like the original Danish version of the translation because we have been uh, rewriting the whole thing over several times. So it's it's an altogether un- new and unique thing in itself. Um, yeah. But just just return to the fact that we are called mycelium. Uh, because we have to engage in a bit of uh, identity politics with uh, Michael, um, in the sense that we mycelium um, is 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 a fungi, it's a it's a it's a fungal term, and the fungal world is not the world of plants. It's uh, its own um, it's its own kingdom, so to speak. Um, so we are we are we are doing things a bit differently than uh, a plant would do it, but. The main idea comes from the way that the mycelium uh, grows and uh, establishes itself in in the ground, uh, where it will fly uh, in the wind or be spread like spores, and they will find purchase in some some ground, some and uh, will grow from there. And in this, in this growth, it will use itself. It will take sustenance and nourishment from uh, from from the from the ground, but it will continuously eat its own core uh, to create uh, more uh, more networks of mycelium. Uh, and this whole process is, you could say, is cannibalistic because it's eating itself. It's uh, uh, it's 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 actually using itself to construct uh, a more complex complex mechanism or organism. Um, and but the main the key the key thing is that the the center is um, is always missing from the very get go uh, when the when the the spore starts uh, growing it eats away at its own core and I think to us that's the best picture of the process that all attempts at having a sort of central nervous system or central control core or any sort of hierarchy in that sense, where things are deferred to one another in a in a structure, uh, we try to circumvent that, uh, and we try we try it in the way we process, the way we create, and the way we talk to each other, and the way we engage with each other. And this whole idea of the center being lost from the get go, and uh, there only being the structure or the process creating itself, uh, felt very. Um, yeah, so very um, foundational to the way we think about ourselves. And the way we practice this, going back to the example from the before, because the way the desire realizes itself or comes into concrete expression in the also in the physical material world is through this sort of also cannibalism. And uh, the ontological, or the, uh, the the way we view this on a very basic level is that it's a it's a common collective project all the way. So it's. Um, it's a way to engage with one another where one another, as terms used to designate one another, has to be deconstructed from within the process itself. Uh, now let's try to entangle that. Uh, Often time. Okay. Perhaps maybe we, we, could, we could have a discussion actually concerning how this functions because 
in a way, the complexity installed into the mosaic process itself uh, when we're entering into these creative procedures uh, culminating in, uh, in publications or performances or talks like we're doing today. Um, we should not perhaps talk about this as disentanglement, but just further entanglement, because you are being involved as you are sitting here right now in this room, listening to the words that we are trying to utter and give sense to. So I think there is no possibility of, of disentanglement or clarification, or, but, but that there, is, there is definitely the, 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 not the risk, but the chance that further entanglements and further involvements will take place. And as to that point, tonight we're, we're wearing a dust mask, and that has nothing to do with your, your new book, Michael, um, but we're wearing dust masks. And we're not just wearing those just to muffle our voices, and to, to hide our faces, that's part of it. We're also doing it for your sake. We're also doing it because we know that we are actually contaminating you right now. We are expressing ideas, we are planting thieves in your head um, as to how you can organize yourself, how you can how you can work together, how you can actually create something without having to always insist on this identity. Um, you, we are in, in some small way in the, in the process of making you divest from yourselves. And so we're wearing, wearing these masks to protect you. We might take them off later, but as for now, you're, you're safe. <laughs> Did you say planting thieves in your head? Planting what? No, no, planting seeds. Okay. <laughs> but that would work too. <laughs> <laughs> So we try to, sometimes you can come across ideas uh, politically, culturally, or concerning aesthetics of design, where you see people try to lift ideas from the natural world and introduce them in the cultural domain. So you can have like natural inspired designs, um, mimicking hyperbolic structures of submarine growth. So you can think of other examples as well, concerning the early years of uh, aviation being inspired by uh, different kinds of uh, birds, animals, and so on. Um, I think we can say also that we go about the business of uh, coming up with new ideas uh, and uh, rethinking um, the being of, uh, the, of, of human being based on various spontaneous modes of inspiration that has to do with what we consider in an everyday way of putting it, the natural world. Um, and in the article that I mentioned before, we try to go through the four basic phases of the life of a Muslim. And uh, as we have already touched a bit upon, cannibalism is part of that cyclus, that, uh, the cycle of life of a Muslim. But what also happens when nutrition is good and the day is good and the local environmental conditions are right, hyphal troops will be shot out of the mycelic organ the corpus or the body of the mycelium, of a given mycelium. And they will sometimes, not always, but sometimes they will steer towards what then appears to be the surface of uh, on, on overground beings. And when this happens, mycelium, which is to be considered in the dark soil, the hiddenness where the roots of trees, for instance, also live and unfold themselves, mycelium is to be imagined as a very subtle and uh, fine network of threats 
with no clear center. There is no uh, central stem or root in the mycelium. It has more to do, perhaps, if some of you may know the notion of the, the rhizome, which is a philosophical notion in some circles, that tries to uh, substitute the notion of a binary, the binary logic of a root system that sort of splits up and goes into different directions uh, with a visibly recognizable logic at times. So the mycelium can manifest itself as a what has been called a fairy circle or a witch's circle in the forest floor, which you need to, you can Google it, or you can try to look it up when you get home. It's like a, 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 a contour of a circle made up of mushrooms, basically. And if you are so lucky to encounter one of these in a forest, you can be very sure that underneath the ground there is a vast body of a mycelium, which does not take the same expression physically, but is a very fine network of threads, functioning as a, amongst other things, functioning as a, not as a fertilizer, but it functions as part of the forest floor's metabolism, mm -hmm. making it possible for other for plants, not other plants, but plants and trees and various other growths to thrive in certain environments. Yeah, and the, exactly, the fairy circle has captivated the minds of people um, throughout history. It has been uh, associated with magic and with ritual. And uh, it's called Hexerin, uh, which is a circle in Danish. Um, and part of that is definitely due to the fact that it It's, it's, it's an expression you come across in a natural environment which looks like it's been planned. It looks like intention. It looks like uh, someone has drawn a circle with uh, the seeds of, uh, or the spores of mushrooms. But that, that's not how what was happened. What's happened is that the mycelium has created this network which has then finally birthed through the ground. And that whole idea of coming across uh, something that looks like a sign or an expression or a manifestation of some sort of intention or some sort of willed action uh, is, is exactly the way we, uh, we confront or we go about um, doing our, our, our works uh, in the sense that they are, they are the, the offshoots or they are the, the sudden emergences of processes which we are engaged in. And at one point, They will emerge. They will become um, performance. They will become uh, a book. They will become some sort of uh, activism. But until that happens, they are on the ground. Not not only for for people, but but for us, because it always it always occurs at, at the last at the last minute when uh, when we are when we are about bursting with. Mm -hmm. uh, With potential. Mm. Yeah. Um. Now, the notion of, of planting thieves in the minds of people actually makes sense in this specific context because if we take a closer look at the way we go about the business of quoting other cultural phenomena, it's very clear that we try to respect or, or recognize this uh, growth dynamic of mycelium in our, in our, not our own, it's just a practical way of expressing it. That The, the aesthetic of informative, artistic, philosophical enterprise that we have uh, uh, undertaken here with Mycelium. So in a lot of our publications, you will find skewered, altered, paraphrased, 
passages of text that if you are a connoisseur of, say, Inger Christensen, Friedrich Nietzsche, Georges Bataille, you will be able to recognize certain things. But they, they will oftentimes, if not always, appear in a somewhat altered state. And uh, we do not quote when we sort of draw on the various um, limbs of our cultural mycelium that mycelium itself is also part of. So you can talk about mycelium with a capital M and with a, with a, uh, with a low letter M, where the, um, the capital M mycelium can be used to describe the group of human beings entering to a mycelic mode sometimes. And you can use the other version of the of the word mycelium with a small m to designate the actual natural phenomena phenomenon of a mycelium in the uh, soil in forests and so on. And so if you consider if you consider the, the, the what what we with a German term would call Geist or on in Danish spirit as the totality of, of potentially self reflexed human culture. You can say that we are all part of this living organism that society constitutes, that is linguistically mediated through language use, written and uh, verbally uh, spoken, uh, but it is also very much mediated through telecommunication, the internet, and uh, a host of other non-digital technologies that we use every day in our in our in our doings. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are we are practicing. We are, we are, we are thieves in a sense that we, we, we are not trying to, uh, to respect in any way the notion of um, cognitive ownership or the rights of literary works and so on. We, we try to transgress those boundaries in our, in our way of going about our business. We don't have to say it all the time, but now we're spilling the beans. Mm-hmm. And, in, and in relation to that, and uh, I think one of the reasons why, I think one of the reasons why Masilin is doing this I don't know, but I think, um, is that we are actually utilizing the process of decay, the decay which sets in into, like, in all culture. Um, the, the, the production of culture over time will uh, insert um, changes and drift. Things will lose their meaning. They will become change. They will, they will lose their original meaning. They will be mistranslated. This happens all the time. That's a part of reproduction. That's that part of how culture reproduces itself. It transforms. I think what we're doing is actually just letting, using this decay, this aspect of decay, and just utilizing it for our benefits, or not our benefits, because we don't actually benefit from it. But neither do the people who we would, the authors or the people who would be recognized for having created or said something. We are actually uh, putting holes in their identity. And letting it seep out, saying this is you. You are no longer you are no longer in control of this thing which has come from you. It is now part of the compost heap of, of history or of culture. Um, so it's, it's a bit of it's a bit of bit of um, activism mm. on both the level of in the in the individuality and on the level of culture and on the level of um, yeah of ownership and mm. so forth. In that regard, I think it's. Maybe, maybe we think, maybe it will turn into thought in somebody else's head, we'll see. But uh, in that regard, it's, uh, it's possible to uh, latch onto some of the notions or conceptions or analytical ideas that uh, Michael also voiced before concerning uh, the Occupy movement. Because that's a very, um, 
Uh, it's a clear instantiation or example of uh, political protest and the uh, social uh, uh, phenomenon characterized by social gathering in certain places and spaces and so on, um, with a with a somewhat at times somewhat vague message and at other times a very clear and uh, recognizable message. Uh, but we are we are not, uh, and I do, I do not say that everybody particip- that has participated in uh, Occupy uh, the Occupy movement had a self-conception that um, had to do with the actual hopes of uh, overthrowing the, 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 the rotten system of late modernity and globalized capitalism and uh, neoliberalism and what have you of uh, predicaments that we are facing in the current world. Um, but we, don't, we do not work, I think, uh, maybe we think, maybe it will turn into a thought in somebody's head and I mean, we'll see. But Museum um, does not really enact itself through a very... A optimistic um, self-conception that that has to do with the fact that we can alter anything in a real political or a concrete political manner, uh, but it has to do with uh, it has more to do with trying to incorporate and implicitly communicate ideology criticism that has to do with the, as I said before, as we said before, and maybe it will turn into a thought in somebody's head in a minute. Uh, intellectual ownership, <laughs> capitalism. And uh, basically, full-fledged uh, egocentric narcissism, which is so ex- pervasive in our current society, um, that it is in many ways highly problematic. Yes, and I think, I, I think uh, to some extent, what I said earlier, or what I said earlier about this uh, gas mask protecting you, I think, to to in a real, real sense, you you must all know now. You should know now that you are. If you choose to do so, you would be would be able to go out tonight and say, "I would like to be part of mycelium. I would like to do something in, under this header." Then you would be able to do that. Mm, absolutely. That's how it works, um, and there would be no. Uh, you would, wouldn't. You wouldn't have to run it past some sort of committee. You wouldn't have to be like, uh, "Do you do? Is this fine?" Or can you just please uh, read this through and see what you think? Don't, you're not, that, that's not the thing. You, if you take up the mantle, you are able to do mycelium now. You are you are able to perform mm. mycelium. You are able to do mycelium. Mm. Um, and afterwards, you would be able to spread that on. Do we have to wear the strange costumes? <laughs> and, uh, and do the intellectual branding as well? I, I don't think uh, you would have to, but um, if you chose to go under that header, mycelium, then you would... Uh, yeah. <laughs> what's the name of the, what's the name of it? Mycelium. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you would All be able right. to do so. But well, let's let's end on that note with a uh, a warm invitation to join the uh, not the movement but the the grouping and the spreading of the hypo troops of the mycelium. Yes. <laughs> So maybe we have maybe I, I will I will pose a couple of questions or, or sort of provocations to you and maybe we'll start exactly. the conversation that way and then other yes. people will join me. Uh, the the first has to do with, um, uh, with with your insistence on decentering, and which which I very much identify with as well. Uh, but um, uh, do you see any difference between the center and the middle? Because I would argue that vegetal being is also decentered. But the, the middle is precisely not the center. The middle itself is the center, and the middle is the place from which uh, vegetality starts. So when you take a seed, uh, it starts growing from the middle. That is, uh, it's just below ground level. 
and it starts starts germinating up mm. and down simultaneously. Yes. Uh, uh, and, and, and so it is, the seed is not a center, but it's a middle. Do you see that the importance of that di- distinction for your practice and for your thinking as, as Masilia? And the second um, uh, point related to that is on the difference between the fungal and the plant worlds is, as I see it, the, one of the main differences is that uh, in plant life you have uh, probably the first living phenomenology of, of space as uh, 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 constituted in, in the experience of what is up and what is down. Because again, for, for a seed to realize where it needs to send roots and where it needs to send a shoot, it has to orient itself spatially in a very concrete way in its milieu. And it does it by a sense of what is called graviotropism, which is curiously enough the same sense that we humans have in uh, the, the, the same structure we have in our ears. It's a small, loose, pebble-like particle that when it falls down with the force of gravity, uh, uh, activates a biochemical reaction that lets us know that that's where down is and that's where uh, up is in the other direction. And the seed has the exact same equivalent structure that is loose, that when it falls down with the force of gravity, it lets uh, the, the seed know where, where to grow roots and therefore where on the opposite side to grow a shoot. Right, so uh, th- there is a kind of um, not a hierarchy, but a sense of spatiality of what is up and down that I think is probably absent from a fungal experience of being in the world. Uh, and and so, how do you relate to to that difference? Uh, that's the supplemental question to the middle center distinction. Um, yeah, um, I think returning to this whole idea of spatiality. I think what I'm, I, I see the distinction clearly, but and what we tried to do here tonight was make basically make a callback to the idea of identity politics in terms of plant life mm-hmm. and fungal life, because in a sense they are they are overlapping and they are part of the same kingdom. They are actually not the, the separate kingdoms, um, but. I think the distinction that we are working out from is more. Um, in terms of the things that you said earlier about the animal uh, being um, being uh, movement mm-hmm. and the pl- the plant being eventual being uh, sedentary or sedentary, mm-hmm. this whole idea because to us that's uh, actually quite wrong in the sense that movement um, is this whole idea of animals being being able to move mm-hmm. is uh, because you're viewing things from uh, a two-dimensional perspective. Yes, it's true that animals have been able to move uh, across uh, planes and uh, and move like that. But in a sense, it's really plants that have been able to ver- move vertically, move in that dimension. So that's that's uh, Is that true. What? Plants are the only things that can go up and down. No, it's not that they're the only thing that can't. But <laughs> they, they have movement in, in space, in vertical space. Sure. Yes, that's the main, main point. So do goldfish. <laughs> what? So do goldfish. The goldfish can move up and down. <laughs> yes, but it's not, it's not that, it's not that mm-hmm. animals don't have movement in, in 3D space. It's the idea that plants have movement, vertical movement, by growth. 
maybe it also latches onto the notion of various timescales. So certain interesting theoreticians and uh, art critics talk about uh, concerning uh, art in the Anthropocene, the age of global warming and uh, multi-species extinction and so on. They talk about the need to engage with the multi-species thinking. And um, maybe some of you know Donna Haraway's work, for instance, uh, on uh, making kin and uh, multi-species sympathy and so on. Um, And I think uh, maybe it has to do with this also, right? Because when you take a look at some of the uh, very cleverly designed and technologically refined BBC documentaries on the secret lives of plants, for instance, and also just uh, good old David Attenborough commenting on planet Earth and so on, you can see with the technology of time-lapse photography, time-lapse, sorry, photography and recording, you can easily see that it is, we are easily fooled, as we talked about just before, considering the, the, um, um, the embodied intentionality or will, let's say, of plant movement, because movement takes on a whole other appearance if you speed it up a hundred or a thousand times and take it, taking a look at, at plants that seem rather stable, seem rather immobile, seem rather steady. They are highly dynamic. It's just that we are not synchronized temporarily and also to some extent spatially in some instances with the lives of plants, say, a lot of plants at least. Um, so I think maybe it also has to do with those things. That we're entering into, let's say, plant phenomenology or fungi phenomenology. We need to engage with non-human forms of temporality and spatiality in the way we think about things. And in that sense, Entering into botanical studies, geology, evolutionary biology, astrophysics, if you will, will help you to entertain these notions of non-human phenomenology. Mm-hmm. Maybe that will be a starting point. That, that actually um, leads me to a thing that I would like to ask you in terms of your, like your entire body of work, because what you are engaged with is trying to create a new metaphor or not a big one, but you can create a new way of uh, thinking about uh, the political life. You're trying to give us another metaphor, to right. some extent, right? Uh, and the, the thing, I, that's maybe not, not all of what you're doing, but that's a part of it, at least. Mm. And when you are engaged with that, when you're trying to create a new metaphor that people are to live by, or to, to constitute their, their understanding of the world around, then there are some sort of there are some traps in that. There are some things that you could uh, you could easily uh, end up um, misconstruing. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, well, uh, actually, uh, just a correction. First, I I don't think that I'm creating anything new. I see it as a kind of uh, a movement of what uh, Plato called anamnesis. It's a movement of unforgetting. Mm. So the idea is that we uh, uh, we have the heritage of all of these different forms of life in us, except that some of these heritages have been more repressed than others. So that uh, already the animal heritage in the human has been repressed enough, but the vegetal one has been really thoroughly <laughs> repressed. So what, what that, that is why I'm mentioning also this idea of psychoanalysis and doing the movement of the unrepression of that which is uh, very deeply within us, both within our bodies, even at the genetic level, even at the level of photosensitivity. Our skin is a vegetal surface because we're not just sensitive to light in in our eyes. Our whole skin is sensitive to light, like the the surface of the leaf is, for instance. And this is not just a comparison. This is not just a metaphor. We actually 
the, the genetic uh, uh, structure for it is is overlapping uh, in a sense, or the the, the uh, mechanism I mentioned for uh, uh, having a spatial orientation of what is up and down. Mm. Uh, so this is again not metaphoric. I, I'm not trying to. Uh, it's neither metaphoric nor new. I'm trying to rediscover or unrepress certain tendencies of existence that have been uh, uh, deep within us, within our biological, psychological, social, and political makeup, but that have been, for one, for one reason or another, uh, uh, left uh, out of our field of vision and, and, uh, uh, and, and in fact, deeply repressed. So the, that is, by the way, why I also object to, even though I sympathize in part with the multi-species thinking, I object to the language of the species because I don't want to see these living beings as, uh, as species are just uh, uh, the, the same as these empty forms, boxes of uh, 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 types of beings that can be filled with the beings that correspond to them. Uh, uh, and I much prefer to think about uh, uh, vegetality, animality, and humanity as dynamic tend tendencies, as vectors, mm. as opposed to, to these kind of containers that you can easily classify and create, again, a very inorganically based system of classifications that is Linnaean, right? That complexity of the, the Linnaean system is based on the accretion of mineral-like accretion and not an organic kind of growth uh, uh, that, that, that we know. Okay. Um, should we open it up to the uh, floor? Are there any questions? Yes. Uh, um, I apologize in advance if I butcher uh, one of the central points from both uh, presentations. Uh, and I, I actually, I've, I've forgotten partially uh, how you mentioned your uh, critique of neoliberalism and, and in, in essence, what I understood with it was that neoliberalism is uh, defined by an ethos of growth. Is that a correct assumption? Yes, at, at, the, at the economic level, right? There's, yeah. I, I mean, this is the most persistent feature of neoliberalism, this insistence on on infinite economic growth. Yeah. Right? A, okay. Uh, which parts of neoliberalism would you say that takes place? Where? Where do people actually commit to this infinite, infinite growth? That's that's question one. Mm -hmm. And two, if that is actually the case, is that even uh, disaster? I, I, I sound like I, I'm sound, sounding like I'm some uh, uh, apologetic for uh, for neoliberal uh, politics, which I am not. If 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 I was able to be uh, part of modern Ifratshona, I, I probably would be. Um, but. Um, but I'm not sure growth, I mean, if it is there, which I would argue it is not, um, or this this uh, commitment uh, to growth, uh, but if it was there, then that would also uh, align with what we see in the, uh, within all genuses and species, that growth grows till it dies, right? Growth is, is something that uh, necessarily tends toward... Uh, Corruption at, at some point and, and dies, right? We see this in all species, uh, whether they're plants, fungal, or uh, or animals. So is that not just? Uh, yeah, that was a two-part. Uh, mm. I, I hope I, I made it concise enough. Right. 
Well, I, uh, I, I would say that you, it, it's all pervasive at the ideological level of neoliberalism, but uh, uh, the, the, the idea of infinite growth is very much factored into the very logic of capital. I mean, you can't even have growing, uh, growing profit margins. Even the, uh, the, the, profit, the, the, the difference between the profit margins has to grow, right? Even growth itself cannot stagnate, but has to grow. You have this meta kind of growth, which is why you have derivatives, hedge funds, and so on, and all the, the, all the bubble of speculation, of financial speculation, to add to the kind of growth that can gradually happen at the level of material <coughs> consumption. I mean, at the very basics of, uh, of, of, of how capital works, you have to have constant growth, and even the growth of growth itself, in order to even sustain the system, in order to... to, to I would argue that belongs to liberalism and not neoliberalism, though. Uh, neoliberalism is rather uh, defined by its limitations and governmental uh, appropriation of these limitations. Neoliberalism is rather the, the type of governmentality that, as uh, the two Mycelians, or however it's pronounced, um, said, uh, that includes... Uh, for instance, astronomy or biology. Mm. It, it is a constant search for uh, for the uh, these are the words of Gary Baker, the, the absolute bearable minimum of, of, of something, and that's and that's a constant adjustment. That's that's not something mm. that that tends toward continual growth. That is uh, inherently something that's very much aligned with all seven principles of. Uh, of, of your philosophy, or, or what what I understand from the, from your philosophy, would be my argument. Mm. Uh, I think Mercedes uh, would tend to agree with what you're saying concerning neoliberalism being primarily a regime of governance. Mm. Uh, it's a way in which you have a very centralist political uh, system that tries to make sure that certain interests are met. That before the um, realization of neoliberalism as a um, mode of governing, uh, having state power, were sort of um, uh, not centrally controlled. You had a long time where you had a firm belief in free market powers and so on, but they should not be uh, politically steered or ruled from a central perspective. I think some of the central traits of Reaganomics and also the politics of Margaret Thatcher and uh, what we see also uh, a lot of times in a welfare society such as Denmark is that you have very central political administration of free market forces. To give just a brief example also concerning climate politics and the way in which we see the European Union uh, functioning these uh, these years, the invention of quota that certain countries could... uh, um, could uh, have certain amounts of emissions of CO2 and, and uh, other greenhouse gases and so on, they actually quickly turn into new financial products that you can uh, invest in, speculate in, and produce new products mm-hmm. I just talked about before concerning hedge funds and so on. And uh, that is a very good example of how uh, neoliberalism sort of, um, and the way neoliberalism affords ca- the, the um, capitalism's a parasite-like way of being. So even if you have a progressive idealist green agenda on a political level, it would be, it would be, um, uh, um, it would be um, contaminated with this notion, uh, with this growth ideology. 
So in that sense, I think it's, it's on a very basic level, we need to make the concession that, of course, neoliberalism is very, on a very central level, tied to the ideology of infinite growth. So there's one question. Any more questions? What is the live question? Okay, well, we've got there. Okay, we go. Uh, yeah. All right. I have to turn this into a question. I think this. Uh, I have. I, I have a lot of questions to both uh, the parties, but I'll try to uh, uh, formulate some kind of questions that uh, seems to, uh, I think, uh, that you both uh, address. Uh, namely, the question of uh, non-identity. Uh, I think that it was uh, 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 an idea that both the uh, party, the, the both parties, um, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, tried to uh, elaborate on. We are not. Uh, a, we are not a party. We have parties. Oh uh, yeah. All right. You know what I mean. <laughs> anyway. Um, anyway. Uh, well, that's a good point, actually. <laughs> but um, thank you. But uh, okay. So my question is, and I think I have to. Uh, uh, say a bit more because, uh, before I can pose the question is that uh, when you um, uh, if you're in the plant uh, kingdom or I don't like the, the, the plant dumb or the, the fungi dumb <laughs> then um, uh, then uh, you have a kind of growth or a kind of uh, uh, yeah uh, a kind of growth that aren't uh, that uh, in a strict sense doesn't constitute uh, any uh, individuality. Uh, I know that Mada, you you are quoting Nietzsche quite extensively in, in your book, Time uh, Thinking. Uh, and if you go just one step back, <laughs> uh, you could get to someone like uh, Schopenhauer. And uh, and for Schopenhauer, uh, individuality was con- is constituted by the. Uh, the double knowledge knowledge of yourself as uh, will and representation, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and which tie ties the knowing subject to this dub- double knowledge. Uh, and the interesting thing about that, I think, is that uh, it ties uh, the idea of individuality to uh, a representation of yourself and to something that is necessarily reaches out be, uh, beyond this. Uh, out uh, beyond this representation, namely the will, which is also playing a part in e- everything else uh, and anything else in, in, in the local surroundings. Um, so you have this kind of idea of individuality that you can also, because it's tied to some kind of representation, indent- identify with. If you identify with it, you necessarily identify with the representation of it, and therefore not the totality of what a individuality is. All right? So far, so good. <laughs> um, so, obviously, there's a problem with, uh, you know, uh, any kind of identity politics that identifies, who thinks that uh, identity can be uh, identical to the identity. And I think that Shannon Nancy called an identity that identifies with the self uh, kind of fall into madness. Uh, I think... It, uh, but, so... And here's my question. Uh, in, in the uh, fungal, uh, fungal world and in the plant world, um, I know that you, Mala, is talking about exteriority. Uh, plants have some kind of exteriority in, 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 in a sense. Uh, uh, in, in the end, it's, it's the sun, right? Is, is that correct, Wallace? Uh, well, you can elaborate on that. But there's some kind of exteriority, but is there representation? 
is there any room for representation in and uh, and if if that's not the case uh, to what sense can we talk about uh, individuality and also uh, further on about uh, identity uh, uh, so and if we want to apply this point of some, some kind of uh, we should there's a kind of non-identity politics uh, shouldn't we also allow that in a sense that what constitutes us and what in, in the sense that we are also we are like plants but also different from plants is that we are also uh, we have representation and this is precisely what constitutes our individuality uh, and obviously we shouldn't uh, confuse ourselves with the identity of our individuality but but maybe identity could be some kind of gateway block into intimacy all right so <laughs> i think there's a question <laughs> somewhere here uh, at least there was a very long comment but and i think that's uh, a few questions along but uh, and i think that actually i think it's a question or comment for for, for both uh, uh, all all Oh, <laughs> I, I, I can say both of you. Uh, I can see all three of you. Uh, <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah, so, yeah. No, no problem. I understood the question perfect. perfectly. <laughs> so, mycelium is all for intimacy. And uh, as we have been talking about, we are all for uh, collectivity and emergence. Mycelic, semi-stable culmination in certain products, say. It could be a book, a pamphlet, a talk, um, a performance, a sudden uh, burst of political activism, some would recognize it as, or whatever. But the important thing is that through the practice, uh, through the mycelic practice, mycelium itself which is only a pragmatic way of talking about mycelium, because talking about mycelium in, in, in the singular as something that could be itself is already linguistically doing violence to the phenomenon that we're talking about. That's a very important to stress that. But anyway, mycelium is against the individuality, if you will, but it's not against recognizability. So I think we maybe uh, we might be dealing with a, um, a, 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 a self-conscious mode of being in language that uh, that do not um, affirm any notions of uh, correspondence theory of truth. Mm. So every linguistic utterance, even notions of individuality or making reference to specific bodies and so on, are purely performative, purely pragmatic. And they serve specific uh, goals that are only intermediate of uh, transgressive desires and uh, erotic becomings. Maybe that's a start, yeah. but it's a, you. It's very vast questions we're dealing with here. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> well, uh, yes. So uh, maybe I will start with this notion of representation. So, insofar as we can try to imagine at the limits of our imagination what plant experience would would be like, what how how plants could experience the world, I think that representation would be absent from it because mm. to to have the power of representation, you have to have. Uh, the kind, not not just the minimal separation from from the world, from the place where you are, but the kind of separation that is presupposed by the subject-object relation. So that representation is already a structure uh, that uh, uh, that spans a bridge that spans subjects and objects. 
plant experience, as I uh, as I can imagine it, or insofar as I can imagine it, it uh, doesn't work with representations. It works with presences. So we, uh, when when we talk about plant memories, and plant scientists themselves say that plants store memories, they, they can retrieve them, they, they can remember certain events in their environment. Over different generations. Over different generations at the genetic level and also at the level of, of each plant itself. So I'll give you an example. For instance, uh, blossoming decisions. These are not random events. A plant has to go through uh, uh, many different sort of deliberations, as it were, in order to decide when to blossom, because it is, uh, I mean, if you put it in very economistic terms, it's a huge energy investment, uh, right, to, to actually blossom, and it can be a matter of life and death as well, in a more existential risky sense. So it has to very carefully monitor the changing environmental conditions in order to decide now is the optimal time to, to blossom. And one of the things that allows it to reach that decision is the memory of the last rays of the sun, the memory of sunlight. Uh, so that when uh, the, the sun is setting, it's uh, uh, emitting particular waves of, uh, uh, of, of light that uh, the plant uh, 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 captures at the cellular level and stores this kind of memory uh, uh, for a period of a month or a bit more even. So you have 30 of these captures of these memories that are then compared in terms of the time when that, that those those rays of sun were uh, were seen, right? And so it can the plant can then actually the tree, let's say it's a cherry tree, uh, can uh, uh, see how the uh, length of the day is increasing, and use it as one of the factors in its decision. Only one of the factors, so there, there are probably. Uh, dozens of them, right? The changing uh, humidity uh, in the air, the temperatures, and so on. But this memory of the sunlight is a presence of that particular stimulus at the cellular level. It's not a representation, it's a presence. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, the, this, uh, this cherry tree before it blossoms operates with the presences of light itself. And we humans also, we, we, we do represent things for ourselves. But our, at, at another level, uh, there are always multiple levels involved. At another level, uh, we do work with presences so that the, when, when the light uh, hits the surface of my skin, it is a presence of that light itself that is, that is imprinted there as opposed to the light that enters my eye and then gives a certain uh, uh, representation and image of, on my retina and, and gives me a visual object, right? Both of these, so we see with, with our skin as, just as we see with our eyes. And so one vision is more vegetal and the other is more properly animal human. Uh, we also breathe with our lungs, but we also breathe with our skin. So that, that breathing uh, 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 on the surface of our bodies uh, is much more vegetal, just as leaves breathe, uh, plants uh, breathe with their leaves, right? And that goes to the question of vegetal organization, of plant organization, that is uh, really important for, for our gathering today. Uh, the idea that plant organs, uh, plants do have organs, but they are also replicated, so that in the same organ, like a leaf, you have so many different functions that it's mind-boggling. A leaf sees, a leaf breathes at the same time. Uh, a leaf is a sentient surface for touch uh, as well. So all of these different functions overlap uh, and, and, and you can again imagine at the limits of your imagination what would it be like 
a being that has a thou thousands of eyes and thousands of lungs, all on the surface, all overlapping in the same organs, right? And that would be vegetal organization, which we also participate in, insofar as we are wrapped in this gigantic leaf, for instance, which is, which is our skin. Uh, then, in terms of the growth outwards, right? Uh, yes, so plants do grow outwardly, uh, and this is the kind of growth that uh, uh, expansion uh, in space that is usually uh, um, devalued in our Western culture. So spiritual growth, as we understand it, is an inner growth, right? So it's this uh, inner development uh, of, of, uh, of, of psychic life and, and so on. But uh, we know what happens to even to our bodies when there is just an inner growth of something. We, we, we can get an ingrown male and it inflames and infects and, and gives lots of discomfort and even threatens uh, the body. This is what happens also with Western culture. When it is, insists too much on inner growth and on decoupling these two dimensions of growth from one another, the, we, we, we get an ingrown culture like the, the, like the tradition of Western metaphysics with all of the problems that, that this is posing. And then finally, on the question of individuality and individuations, individuation, I would say that plants are uh, eminently individual. They're not individual, they're individual. And that's why maybe where we, are, we overlap with this legion uh, thing that goes back to a common heritage mm. of Nietzsche, uh, in a sense, to throw in a proper name that you might want to resist. Mm -hmm. uh, but plants are individual in the sense in which uh, uh, they cannot just be simply uh, broken, broken up, and uh, sort of destroyed that way. But they are, they are pa the parts that seem to be uh, just parts of individuals are individual in their own right, and then in the, 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 the inside those there are more individuals. So, so individuality in the, in the end ceases to matter. It, what what matters is the individuality of uh, uh, the the the, the uh, almost infinite division. Uh, that allows these different parts of plants to live. And then finally, a Hegelian view of vegetal individuation is that uh, a fruit is individuated by the sun, right? So that uh, 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 a green apple that is still very unripe is the most unindividuated one. And as it, uh, as it keeps growing and keeps imbibing sunlight and so on, it starts get, uh, getting color, getting a more recognizable shape, a fuller shape. But the fullness of individuation, as always in, in dialectics, the fullness of individuation is already demise and decay. Mm -hmm. So just as the fruit is about to be individuated, it is already rotting, right? That sweetness of a ripe fruit is already a foretaste of rottenness. And this is, this is what individuality is, the problem of individuality in, in human life as well, right? The, the, the kind of the fullness of that individuation is already a sign of rottenness, a sign of decay and death as well, right? So that's why, and, and here we have not just Hegel, but Heidegger, right? Being toward death is what individuates me the most. Uh, one can read it dialectically in that sense. That the humanness is like that, that green apple that is, uh, uh, that, 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 that is being individuated by, by this moment of already decaying death. Actually, uh, the, the moment towards the end of this part where, where you um, talk about uh, that, yeah, when you got to the importance of decay, and I also really like resonate with that idea. But then you sort of juxtapose that to say the sorts of um, 
life ending that comes about through plastics and mm. radiation. Mm-hmm. And I kind of worry a little bit about this this sort of hierarchization of death. Mm. And I see there's like a sort of like an organic system built in death thing that you're you're pointing to like the decay point of the apple, like the apple's ripening process is to decay, is mm. yeah. versus these other things which are very outside of that. But I wonder is that not constructing a new outside for us organic life to appraise the non organic mm-hmm. world from? And is there maybe right. a different sort of timescale on, on yeah. which we would consider that? Right. And so you know, that, that's an excellent question. Let me explain why. Uh, and, and it's an excellent time to raise it because today is April 26th. It's 33 years since the Chernobyl disaster. And in, in 2016, so three years ago, I published a book together, which is a collaboration with the French artist Anaïs Tondeur, dedicated to the 30th anniversary of, of Chernobyl. That book is actually available for free online because uh, we, we published it with the Open Humanities Press, so you can upload the PDF of the whole thing without any charge. That's the beauty of Open Humanities. They make their books in electronic formats uh, fully free, and then you can also buy a hard copy at cost if you, if you want to, but there's no reason to do that. So, um, But in any case, uh, the, the idea is that um, in, with, with radioactive materials, one of the things that happens in Chernobyl, and there's, there's a lot of investment by the current ideology in saying that Chernobyl was nothing. It has been exaggerated. Uh, wildlife has returned and the place is now booming and blossoming because humans have left and, and the radiation has not really done any damage to the plant and animal communities there. One of the things that is happening there is that the processes of decay are uh, stopped so that um, uh, uh, the radiation has interfered with uh, very fragile uh, communities of bacteria, of fungi that live in the soil, uh, and, and that, that do that important work of decomposing uh, fallen vegetal, vegetal matter, leaves, trunks, and so on. And so what you have in the forests around the Chernobyl exclusion zone are leaves and trunks of trees that are accumulating over the last 30 plus years and appear like they failed just yesterday because they are not rotting, mm-hmm. uh, which creates lots of possibilities, of course, for, for forest fires, but also does not renew the, the soil, does not allow for, for this vegetal matter, matter to return into the soil and makes the, the forest itself unsustainable in the long run. Um, uh, and, and so to, to, to explain a little bit, uh, uh, to me, this is just one piece in the puzzle of what happens when the... Uh, uh, mad fantasies of Western metaphysics are realized in their perverse shape. So if we think of Western metaphysics very roughly as uh, the the dream of immutable, unchangeable being, uh, Plato's world of ideas, things that did not were not generated, were not born, and will never decay, that will be forever the same, irrespective of what happens in the world here below. Right? This has been the dream of metaphysics since at least since Plato onwards. And it has not been uh, realized in its pure shape, but it has been realized through certain technological achievements uh, uh, whereby humanity has managed to create materials that approach or approximate that kind of an eternity, like certain radioactive materials that uh, have half-lives counted in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, which to all uh, intents and purposes is tantamount to an eternity. So uh, the idea is that these metaphysical dreams have been realized concretely, materially, as the worst nightmares 
for actual existence for life itself that uh, that that stop growth and decay exactly as Plato wanted in the, in the realm of ideas, but now here they they do it here below as it were compared to that world of ideas, uh, uh, and and so uh, that was a category distinction view, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. So to me, this is this is not just some. Uh, side effect, some strange, weird uh, uh, outcome or ramification of, of human industries. Uh, what the the, the pra human practices at the economic, technological, political level are very much informed by this history of ideas, which itself arises from its concurrent practices. And so we have to view them uh, a, 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 in a certain unity, in a certain conjuncture. Uh, Right, time for one more question. If there's like anyone who wants to break the circle of beans, that would also be cool. Yes, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, otherwise? Well, yeah, I'll yeah. ask something, I think, uh, somehow. Um, uh, I thought that uh, the intention that you uh, first stated, my Celia, of. Um, uh, kind of trying to uh, transgress the borders between active um, speaker and passive uh, listeners and um, to not uh, continue uh, philosophizing uh, so much was uh, uh, great um, but I would like to ask um, uh, yes, what um if you could go further in that, because I didn't think that you uh, did so well, perhaps, because uh, we were uh, sh shook a bit, uh, which was great, but then we sat down again and listened to you speak. Um, and now we get to speak a bit um, and uh, create kind of a collective here. Um, but I think you could go further with that. And I'd yeah, just like to ask um, how you aspire to do that, or if you do. Mm. Mm. Uh, that's, a, that's a great critique, critique um, because that is always um, the issue. It's always when we are doing things that we would like to, um, we would like to engage ourselves and we would like to engage people. Uh, and that's always um, the question of how to do that and how to do that in a form that people are comfortable with. Um, and if they are not comfortable with it, how can we push them in a way which makes them prone to or susceptible to engaging with us? Um, so I don't know if we have any uh, any good ideas as to how we could end up doing something a bit more involved. What you are doing right now, first of all, thank you very much for the seat as well. From, um, yeah. I think what you're doing right now is uh, you are you are you are you are trying to realize some of the potential of the intention stated in the beginning by uh, voicing this critique. So thank you so much for that. I wholeheartedly agree, as uh, just one among many mycelia of mycelium, that we could easily have come up with more performative, more effectively intense ways of being here tonight. Uh, as we also gave voice to in the beginning of our our talk. Uh, tonight, uh, we would uh, try to balance mm -hmm. between engaging in a more uh, recognizable, normal <coughs> talk, presentation yeah. of uh, what we are doing, 
what we are up to and why we do it. Mm-hmm. And it is difficult for us to um, explain such delicate matters without entering into a bit of philosophy, because the truth be told, we uh, do many of the Marsilia engaged in Marsilium think philosophy is highly important to um, grapple with and to read, both historically but also contemporarily. Um, but I think uh, you should attend some other events with Marsilium that are not uh, intended to convey uh, in, a, in a regular communicative manner uh, some of the artistic, philosophical uh, conceptions of how we organize. So tonight was uh, an exception that will confirm the rule, but uh, we are typically a bit more unruly when we do the performances. And uh, if you would like to have a bit of just a, um, an appetite of how this can happen, uh, or has happened in the past with Mycelium, you can uh, find uh, an interview with two other Mycelia of Mycelium in Politiken, that was conducted a couple of years ago after we had a, uh, a major performance at uh, Mayhem in uh, Nabo or Norvest, uh, which uh, did not involve self-reflexive talking at all. Uh, so it will vary from time to time again how the, uh, the witches' circle manifests itself in the forest floor. But thank you so much for engaging, and uh, we would uh, repeat, I suppose, the invitation for all of you to engage mycelically both with yourselves, with one another, with uh, us, that are mycelium, and so on. Please do. Now we an abrupt end to any of that right now. Uh, and I'd like everyone to say thank you to all of our speakers. And um, we'll be uh, hanging out here for like, the next half hour, I guess. There's books for sale, as I've mentioned, and there's ones over there as well, which are also great. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. Uh, round of applause for everybody. If you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a rating or review on iTunes and subscribing so other people can find it more easily.